Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hi there, it's Lani and we're back for another episode. This week, my guest is Dr. Michael Fielding, the Principal Research and Development Fellow in Advanced Mechatronic Systems at Deakin University's Institute for Intelligent Systems Research and Innovation. Mick is a robotics engineer and inventor with 20 years experience conceiving, testing, commissioning and supporting complex systems in a variety of real world applications. His work mixes cutting edge technology with a practical approach and has been used by military, law enforcement and counter-terrorism units in training and in the field. Mick is committed to developing technology that responds to the needs of the end user and that drive takes him to some weird and wonderful locations. I really enjoyed my time with Mick and I'm amazed at the work he's produced. So here we go again, Change One Thing with Dr. Michael Fielding. Is robotics something you always wanted to work in from a young age? Certainly technology of some or of some form or another uh, robotics specifically I probably didn't put that finer point on it so early on but naturally grew toward that over I guess over the years of study and then through my career as well yeah and um, were your parents sort of interested in um sciencey type things were they scientists yeah. themselves or um parents were both teachers Yep. And they grew up in Melbourne and then uh, once they finished university, uh, took a role in the country. So there was good incentives to move to the country and, and teach. So they took a, a three-year contract um, and then that turned into three decades. So <laughs> uh, myself and my siblings spent yeah, the sort of start of our lives all growing up in the country, oh, surrounded by dairy farms and yeah, it was nice. <laughs> country boy then. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> That's good experience. And the... And certainly the, like my parents mentioned their teachers, but they also taught sciences and maths and physics and so forth. Mm. And uh, my grandfather especially had a, a keen interest in electronics and a chemistry background. And so a lot of the time when we're, I was learning things from my parents or, or, or grandparents, my grandfather in particular, that would have been in the, in the field of engineering or science or, or something around that. Yeah, so it's a little bit in the DNA and I've pulled this quote from your bio, Mick, (laughs) and it goes like this. Mick particularly enjoys mixing cutting-edge technology and good old Aussie ingenuity to replace problems people have with solutions they love. When I was reading this, my immediate thought was, this guy is actually MacGyver. Almost, not quite. I'd like... (laughs) <laughs> How do I respond to that? I think you'd be very handy to have around when things sort of go wrong. Yeah, it's certainly the the idea of MacGyvering a solution uh, <laughs> comes up on you know, nearly the daily basis. But that, um, when presented with a problem or a situation, like whether it's with work or, or something out camping or, or wherever it may be, and you need there's a particular outcome that needs to be achieved and you're aware of what the outcome is, my, my mind really just goes into a mode of that's where we need to end up and not achieving that is not an option. And so then brain just goes into lateral thinking overload and looking at how can we repurpose something, how can um, 
you put something together which may not be obvious but it, it, it gets you where you need to go <laughs> and that's always been a, a fun um yeah some, something I enjoy but specifically I guess around the the quote in the in the bio the technology for technology's sake is is not something that I'm passionate about um clever solutions clever use of technology that I really enjoy and certainly taking into consideration the user experience the um, how is someone going to use something why are they going to use it why are they going to use it in that particular way and how else may, may they use it um, and trying to get in that mindset and that's often done through with with close collaboration with end users but understanding what the challenges are and and using the the knowledge that I have and also the knowledge of the broader team that I work with to collectively come up with a solution which is not only solving the problem but it's also really enjoyable to 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 have developing a solution that someone if you take it away from them you know gets disappointed with (laughs) is yeah a big motivator so mick you mentioned user experience and a collaborative approach i'm guessing you use design thinking methodology in your approach to your work we do and it it really depends i guess as to what stage we are along in the pro the process um certainly early on getting an understanding of what the the real challenges are being faced by end users um, is an important part of it. Um, but in the early days also just testing different theories, technologies, possible solutions to see if they're even possible, like if, it, if it's practical, if it works mechanically, electronically, from, from whatever perspective is an important part of um, the, the early stages. And, and then throughout the process, the the spirally or spiral iteration where we design something it might look like a total hack job but it it gets us in front of the end users and says oh and it's something to evaluate something to test something to for them to start providing feedback on so in my experience the if you ask someone with a blank canvas so you know what do you want it can be quite mm-hmm. a challenge to um to to solicit that 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 feedback or those mm. those diamonds, I guess, in terms of what they're what they're looking for. But if you put something in front of someone and say, "Is this what you're after?" Um, very quickly, they can come back to you with with all the things that are wrong with it. No, it can't <laughs> be like this. It can't be like that. It needs to be a different material. It needs to be a different size, a different weight, or whatever it might be. And that um, is a really important process. So, not looking at um, arriving at the the final polished solution and saying, "Here is what you asked for." Mm. That's really a case of working with the end users. Um, and iterating with their feedback as closely as possible, um, yeah, in a, in a way which is um, hopefully to, uh, getting you toward the, the end point um, and not not pivoting too much or at least zigging and zagging too much in terms of what you're trying to achieve. If you're doing that too much down the process, I'd suggest that perhaps yet yeah, you haven't had enough consultation mm. to begin with in the first place. But um, that regular feedback talking about what you've done, showing what you've done and talking about what what you're intending to do and why really is an important part in understanding the problem. So you're really sort of involving the user in the process of making or inventing the end result basically. Definitely having them involved in the process, The whether it's the coming up with the invention or whether it's just really well articulating or, or sharing with us, you know, what is it that they don't like about the current way they do things or what is it that needs to change? Um, sometimes asking for someone, asking someone what they think the solution is is a less valuable question um, than asking what the problem is. Um, b- 
it's a they're both important and certainly understanding the insights or, or interrogating the solutions that people have come up with to say, well, why have you gone down that path? That's a great way of looking at something, isn't it? It's sort of um, a little bit of a backwards way to how it may have been done, uh, but something that is probably becoming a lot more popular with um, the way that, you know, things that are evolving so fast, especially with technology, mm-hmm. you know, w- what do they really need as opposed to what do we think they need? Yep. Um Michael, you're named inventor on seven international patents. Can you tell us a bit about these inventions? I guess with the, although yes, I am a named inventor on a number of them, it's certainly been a team, uh, a team effort for the development of, of the majority of the, the IP or the technologies that are listed in there. And I think, again, having a, a team of, of really capable individuals working together uh, is naturally good ideas are going to come from that and um, I guess yeah that's really reflected in the number of of patents that I've been named on up until now but again I'm I'm (laughs) one name among many as well. And with something that does have a big team working together what's that look like like what's your workspace look like is it a big shed is it (laughs) like are you all just standing around sort of like are you doing different things what does that look like? So the space itself I guess reflects the um, these days reflects the project quite quite specifically um in the past we've had sort of a um had access to more of a a general build space where we have all of our electronics work all of our mechanical work um all of these facilities in one place and you you kind of bring an idea to that to that place and then a a solution or something to test comes out of it these days um it's a lot more specific. Uh, there's a particular project that I'm working on at the moment where the space that we have is is built for that project and really nothing uh, nothing much beyond that. That being said, there's a, a new um, new facility being built by Deakin at the moment on campus for the, the institute that I'm a part of, ISRI, and that will once again really rebuild this, um, this idea of a, a one-stop solution um, creation, I call it Israeland, um, <laughs> just because of the the wonder or the wonderment that happens there. But <laughs> but it's a uh, um, really having all those facilities and and individuals as well. Those the, all the folks in the team nearby it means that you can do things really quickly and and often be pretty close to the mark. And is there any sort of um, people standing around in lab coats, or are we talking more like? Yeah, it really depends on what we're doing as yes. to what we're wearing. So, yeah. you know, today I'm in jeans and a T-shirt <laughs> and steel cap boots, but, um, you know, other times it's the, the suit and tie. So it, it really comes down to what the, the job is for that day. If it's if we're on the tools, um, you know, building something, we, there's, there's no point having it. It's dangerous having a tie hanging out. <laughs> um, but definitely lab coats, definitely safety glasses, definitely, you know, all the, the PP&E, which I guess is, is traditionally... Uh, what you you might imagine when you're thinking about a scientist. Can you tell us in terms of inventions, how do you keep your brain uh, fresh, Mick? So do you have any little tips and tricks for our listeners out there or possible inventors out there? What do you do? Do you have any little rituals? Do you <laughs> <laughs> um, do you eat avocados every day? Do you have <laughs> Actually, green smoothies? What do you do? Um, what do I do? <laughs> Uh, just being fascinated by stuff, not because it's necessarily in your area, um, but it just to grow the mind. Um, certainly, I take any opportunity to 
to watch or hear or see anyone who's really good at what they do. Um, I figure if you're going to learn something, you may as well learn from the people who are, you know, are the best in their field and you can learn a lot of tip, tips and tricks from that and mm. then you know, really carry, carry those ideas or those concepts around with you and when opportunities present, um, you know, it might be the intersection of four things from completely different fields which all come together and you're like, hey, like, I think there might be a better way of doing that. For anyone listening out there that might want to get into inventing or go down the path that you've gone down, what, what's your advice to them? Have a crack. Um, <laughs> there you go, guys. Have a crack. <laughs> the um, yeah, certainly don't look at getting it wrong as failure. That's you know that's a, a step in the process, and um, really the for, for anyone who who's had a great idea, I'd really recommend, and they want to want to try and find a market for it, or want to want to try and sell the idea, you know, as a concept to someone else. Um, do your homework taking that approach of if if I was going to commercialize this would it be successful and and what can I do to ensure that and understanding what the competition is understanding what the market is understanding the standard SWOT analysis you know type approach really gives you a lot of insight and even if it's just an idea it could be a simple idea run through that process to convince yourself you know either it's a good idea or a bad idea or identify the areas that maybe you need to do a bit more investigation before you know, releasing that fantastic idea to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I want to get into using robotics for real world, real world problems. Um, Michael, you helped with a mine emergency <laughs> 860 metres below surface. When was this and did you use any robots during the rescue? Yeah, so this was um, a, a story from last year where there was a, um, a mining company who showed some interest in robotics and um, I was actually out on a, a site with Army at the time testing one of our systems and I thought, oh, we'll, we'll get back to them once I'm back at the office and the next day they're like, I think after three phone calls, we thought, all right, there's something that, that's a little bit urgent and it, it turned out there was a, um, a situation um, where there were no lives uh, at risk. However, there was an opportunity to... Um, to respond to that situation using something like a robot and they were doing a bit of a, a shout out to see who's who's active or to those who are active in robotics in Australia um, to see if if we could assist and so ultimately um, with I'd say a, a tighter than usual turnaround within about 48 hours uh, we had a solution a robotic uh, system one of our existing robots which were was modified um, to what we thought addressed the the problem um, as it was, and and myself over on a plane in in um, Western Australia, and so one of my good colleagues, uh, James Mullins, was uh, and and supported by others, put together a solution uh, in the lab uh, back on campus, mm. overnight flight um, uh, or dispatched that um, across to WA, and then I rendezvoused with the with the robot there, seeing it for the first time. Um, but also having been involved with some of the design decisions, but then yeah, having to, to actually go down. Uh, so into the you mine. and you and the robot flew over on different flights. We did. And so you met for the first time at the <laughs> mine. <laughs> yeah. So the um, the robot when I first saw it was very familiar to me, other than the angle grinder, which had been strapped on top of it, <laughs> and that was a 
I'd seen a video of it running, which looked like something out of Robot Wars, but <laughs> you know, ultimately it, it had to um, to cut a pipe, and and we thought that might be a, you know, maybe somewhat agricultural, but nevertheless an effective way of doing that. And does it did it have a name that particular robot? <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of wish we did now. Now, um, Mick, you've helped develop Radar, a combined arms live fire target system. Can you explain what this is and how it works? Sure. So um, the Radar system is a a mobile moving target system which is uh, designed to be engaged uh, during live fire training and so essentially provides a moving target um, on which um, soldiers can can train their fire and that's uh, although there have been a number of moving targets developed over the years the way that radar does what it does and and the simplicity of how it can be moved from one location to the other is something which hasn't been uh, achieved to this level before so when you're saying from one location to another you mean like over different kinds of terrain or yep so the so radar it's it's compatible with lightly prepared surfaces, so it wouldn't go, you know, rock hopping, so to speak. <laughs> but certainly on the, the sorts of terrain you'd find across ranges uh, in the country, it, it's very much suited to. Mm. And a lot, a, a number of the the moving target systems that are available today are fixed or based on fixed infrastructure. So where they were installed sometimes decades ago is where they stay today. And although they provide a um, a good training outcome the, it limits the amount of variability that trainees or trainers can can design into the serials that they're using to train uh, train the soldiers on do you get to go into sort of speaking of the defense force um, into these army bases and trial some of the um, these robotic um, targets yeah definitely and that's that's really an important part of of one testing the, the system in a, a real life environment, um, but also having access to the, the stakeholders to provide feedback. Um, certainly individuals providing feedback is, is extremely important, uh, but having teams of people provide feedback often supported by one another as well mm. um, is really important. You obviously spend a little bit of time on army bases. Uh, I imagine there's quite a comparison going from, say, the research lab to the military base. How do you find that? Yeah, it, it, there's certainly a, a big contrast, um, you know, going from nice mm. air-conditioned office uh, to, you know, <laughs> the middle of uh, Australia sometimes with our systems. Yeah. Um, I enjoy it. I like being out and about and it's often a lot of what we do is behind closed doors. Mm. Um, so to be out in the field and, and seeing, you know, really seeing what you've been doing behind the scenes in, in the labs, out there in the wild, you know, working as you might have hoped or, um, you know, really when end users come up and, you know, give you a pat on the back or have a smile on their face saying like, this is awesome. Like there's not much better experience than that. <laughs> This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. So, Michael, what's it like to be a part of a startup 
how's this process been for you and what have you learned from being a part of that side to uh, inventions? Yeah, it's a, it's been quite an experience and you know, really continues to be. Um, the For the majority of my career to date, it's been conceiving and testing and developing ideas and up to a certain point at which at which time you either hand the the idea across elsewhere or, or you you're moving your attention to a different area of research um, because the project's concluded and this has really been an experience of not stopping at any particular point and just going and going and going and the the transition from making you know, something which is a you know works in the lab to something which can be tested in field which to to something which can actually operate in the field is each of those steps are it's simple to to run them off one after the other but to actually develop the technology and the different um, I guess different challenges that need to be overcome for each of those steps mm. is and is, can be a monstrous task yeah um, and so the process of you know probably the biggest um, probably the biggest things that I've learned along the way would be certainly if you're not sure about something ask mm. um, for everything that you're good at there's going to be you know a thousand people who are better at something else and that might be a skill set that you you require so rather than it's important to understand the questions you're asking but you don't necessarily have to be the one with all the answers mm. and that's where working in a team environment and working with your your friends, uh, your, your network around the world and uh, soliciting their advice and, and feedback whenever you can is an important part of um, achieving a, a good outcome at the end. Tell us about the remote control Ausbots you've worked on for things like bomb response units and police negotiations. So the, the Ausbot family of robots was uh, all started in the mid-2000s uh, when we developed a, a robot for... Uh, the Commonwealth Games, and that was essentially designed to to inspect under under seats in stadiums for for devices or objects that shouldn't be there. And over the years, that was developed and developed further um, to a, a a fleet of robots that we have now, which are used actively in domestic law enforcement um, and other 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 tasks. Um, and really, there's a a number of systems which are developed for different unique tasks as well from quite a, a small robot which is remote eyes and ears uh, which would allow someone in a what, what's called a first responder capacity to arrive on a site and do an initial survey of the area to understand uh, any hazards that might be there some of the the mid-level robots um, give you more uh, capacity in order to climb stairs or uh, maybe navigate some harsher terrain all the way up to our largest robots, uh, which can literally bash through doors um, <laughs> and create holes where you know they weren't intended to be. And there's a you know some quite specific use cases where they they're quite valuable, and um, the people who need those have those available to them. Mm, so they're making our first respond. They're making it safer for our first responders, I guess. Um, do you have any? sort of particular stories or examples where these Ozbots have been used and been sort of highly beneficial? One of the stories I enjoy hearing the most is about one of the tracked platforms, Ozbot Mark 8, 
which was sent into a siege. Um, it has a, a microphone and speaker and it was sent in to um, essentially be a, like a mobile phone on tracks um, to the person who was, was in the house. And that individual didn't really like the idea of this robot um, <laughs> coming into the room, so they picked it up and threw it through the front window out onto the lawn and um, the robot was fine. Oh, it no. dusted itself <laughs> off and just, they drove it back in and they're like, hey, this is, we're just trying to have a chat. <laughs> But, um, yeah, they're not always received. Um, so he was – that robot was quite small if he could pick it up and um, – or this person could pick it up. I'm yeah. It was a he, but uh, – and could throw it through the window. That weighs about 16 kilograms and it's designed okay. to be portable, so to be carryable mm-hmm. by uh, – not for terribly long distances, but nevertheless to be taken from a helicopter or from the back of a van or a, a truck or a car and, um, and deployed quite quickly. So is it sort of rolling up there and saying and the person is hearing one of the police voices or is it a little robot voice going, I'm here to communicate with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe one day. For now it's a, it's um, one of the officer's voices yeah. which is, is replayed through the speaker. Uh, Michael, with all these inventions that we spoke about before under your belt, what do you like to do in your spare time when you're off the <laughs> clock, so to speak? Spare time. <laughs> I remember that. What is that? <laughs> uh, no, th- this year's been a busy one. Um, but outside of that, um, I do enjoy relaxing. Often, often, invo- often involves a component of being outside one way or the other. So whether it's going for a swim or rock climbing or hiking, um, I really enjoy being out and about mm. and maybe pushing the body as hard as the mind gets pushed uh, as a nice balancing act. But it's um, <laughs> when you're constantly thinking about your work that's you know it can be part of the process but it's also important to be able to to pull back at times and and understand why you're doing what you're doing not for the end user but for yourself as well mm. and that perspective and and that time to recharge is is something which I schedule into my um, yeah, daily flow as well and sometimes your your best ideas just sort of like uh, float in when you're not really trying to think about them or you're just doing something you know that that you really enjoy that's when you have your best you know ideas sometimes yep. isn't it I'm, I'm sure everyone well I'm not sure but I suspect many people will have at least had the experience of trying to remember someone's name or the <laughs> name of a song or or something and it's it's only when you you remove focus from that that it, that it pops in your mind and that that experience is very much how ideas come to me Mm. And it's a, a targeted approach, like a re- taking a, a formal engineering approach to finding a solution is important, but also that, you know, no holds barred, um, anything's possible mindset, mm. you know, whether it's at the gym or going for a walk or, you know, diving under a wave, you can really, that freedom that the mind has is, is when you're not putting any limits on, on what's possible clears a little bit of space there and allows things to come in. Um, it does. Yeah. And if you could change one thing about the world of robotics to ensure a safe future, what would it be? There's a lot that's said about this or it's certainly in the media a lot more these days, um, specifically around AI and, and the development thereof. But in general, uh, education is absolutely number one. Like you could pretty much ask me any question. I'd say the most important thing is for people to be educated about the topic. With robotics, there are so many opportunities where it can make life easier or safer 
or um, just better in whatever way for individuals. And quite often they're seen as a, a technology which is taking away um, a, a task, uh, which is therefore taking away the job for an individual. And certainly that, you know, it's, it can be a reality at mm-hmm. times, but I think if, if done in conjunction with the, the people who it affects um, in a manner which is inclusive and, and everyone's on board with it, you can get some really good outcomes and like f- for everyone. Um, in terms of the AI side of things, you know, I'm, I'm watching that space as well. <laughs> it's not something that I, I am particularly um, involved with but nevertheless interested. Um, I, I think we can only turn to some of the, the, the advice that's being given from people who are very much at the, the cutting edge of AI mm-hmm. and, and their words are generally slowly, slowly. Mm. Don't, um, don't rush into things yep. quite too much. And, you know, I hope, I hope we can um, heed that advice uh, or warning, whichever way you want, want to take it. Yes. Uh, now, Michael, we have a fast few questions Ooh, for you. To, yeah. <laughs> are you ready? So just the first thing that pops into your that <laughs> fabulous brain of yours. Uh, and here we go. What's the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? If you're not embarrassed by your product at launch, then you've launched too late. Ultimately, what like... What it comes down to is there's always going to be an opportunity for improvement mm-hmm. and if you've addressed all of those on day one, you've probably spent too long getting to day one. <laughs> and so the idea of just putting something out there and, and getting some feedback early and you know, it might be as a, um, in, a, in a small group of users and it might be a, a, a pre-release mm-hmm. um, type scenario but waiting until you're absolutely happy with every last mm. detail of a, of a system or product or, or whatever it may be um, before you release may not be the most uh, efficient way to, <laughs> to get there. So just have a crack basically. Yeah. Just get it out there. If you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would it be? Just one book. I haven't written it yet. <laughs> um. I enjoyed The Martian. That was an audio book though. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> yeah, I used to that listen counts. to it while I rode my bike around the river. That was my downtime. Um, I Yeah, I enjoyed that and so far things are going okay. <laughs> <laughs> and look how you turned out exactly. Um, oh dear. Mick, if your life was a movie, what would it be called and who would star in it? I've got no idea what it would be called but I think it would be Will Ferrell. Oh, yeah. Will <laughs> Is that even how you say his name? Farrell? 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 I think Will Farrell, yeah. (laughs) Um, What would it be called? I've got no idea what it would be called, but it would be Will Farrell. (laughs) Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Change One Thing podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.